0: This episode of Holly Randall Unfiltered is brought to you by Balesa.co. Balesa is a rapidly growing, female-friendly adult entertainment website. Balesa has quickly grown to become a premier destination in porn with millions of women around the world joining the community, and it's only a year old. What's really cool about Balesa is the way that they support women's issues. This Valentine's Day, they're going to be doing a really cool special where they're going to be donating $1 to Planned Parenthood for every hour of content that you watch on Balesa. So basically, you'll be giving back by getting off, which, what could be better? So please support my show by supporting my sponsor and visit Balesa.co. That's B-E-L-L-E-S-A.co. I am so, so over the moon excited about this podcast today. It is a lot different than the other ones that I have done. Um, I am actually interviewing an author this time, and this is Christopher Ryan. He wrote the New York Times bestselling book, Sex at Dawn. Now, it sounds like a salacious romance novel, but it's not. It's actually a anthropological study about why monogamy may not be natural to human beings. And if that sounds interesting to you, trust me, the book is absolutely fascinating. I have so many questions for him. I've been like reading it and highlighting it like I'm back in school making notes. And um, he just has all these interesting uh, stories and studies that really will make you, uh, I think, see... Human relationships a lot differently. So let's get to it and welcome Christopher Ryan to Holly Randall Unfiltered. Welcome back to the show, everybody. This is Holly Randall Unfiltered, and today I have on New York Times bestselling author, Christopher Ryan. Hi, Chris.
1: How's it going? Good. Hello, Hello, everybody.
0: Thank you so much for coming on. I am super excited and also a little bit nervous, I'll admit. I um, have been really looking forward to this interview, and I have been voraciously reading your book, Sex at Dawn, by the way. He wrote this, him and his wife. And it is a fascinating, fascinating book. And I have to say, it's kind of funny because the book is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a study on why monogamy may not actually be natural to human beings.
1: Yeah, natural is a a complicated word, but it's certainly not the way our ancestors evolved. Let's put it that way. Okay. Um, But, you know, obviously we do things that are different from the way we evolved all the time ranging from you know living in little concrete boxes to sitting in traffic all day. So it's possible to be monogamous, it's just that it runs against the sort of uh, evolutionary trajectory, I would say.
0: Right. So I have to admit, when I started reading this book, and I was instantly really, really interested... I, I did mention to my boyfriend, who I'm in a monogamous relationship with, I was like, "Hey, now don't be nervous." But I'm reading because he asked me, he's "Like, what are you reading?" I'm like, "I'm reading this book about like why monogamy may not be natural to human beings." And he was like looking at me. I'm like, "Don't worry. I'm not like I'm not trying to, you know, invoke a uh, open relationship." And you even say in your book, "You say we don't have an agenda here. We're not trying to tell you how you should live your life. We're just presenting you with the evidence, and we frankly don't really know what to do with it ourselves." But we're just going to tell you about our studies, and you can draw your own conclusions.:
1: Yeah, exactly. It's not a book of advocacy at all and and people who haven't read it often assume it is, and so a lot of the hostility that I see directed toward the book is from people who haven't read it and and just sort of you know immediately assume in fact, this morning I saw something the book gets used in weird ways there, there was some uh I think it was at uh, the national, the Humane Society, possibly, or or the SPCA. Is one of these national animal rights organizations. Um, the director's in trouble for sexually harassing female employees, and one of the things that he did apparently was he had a copy of this book on his desk all the time <laughs> and <laughs> would spout off about, "Hey, baby, I know you got a boyfriend, but it's not natural, you know. Read this book and." Man, I cringe when I, I read things like that.
0: Wow, that's, uh, talk about, like, that's the ultimate excuse. I have an academic study as to yeah, why right. we should sleep together. I mean, that's, that's, yeah, bold. why
1: you should lie to your boyfriend and I should lie to my wife. And, right. you know, the, the book is not telling anyone how to behave. It's saying the only advocacy in the book is let's be honest. Right. Right. Let's be honest with ourselves and with each other. And start from there. So, you know, as I said, lots of people have heard me say this a million times, I think monogamy is like vegetarianism, right? It can be moral and ethical and uh, it can be a superior, healthy way to live. But just because you decide to be a vegetarian doesn't make you an herbivore, right? It doesn't mean bacon stops smelling good suddenly, right? It, you're you're going to be tempted oh, because God, of the so kind of animal you are.
0: That's so true. I recently, and I will not say that I am vegan because I am not. I'm still eating eggs and fish, but I've recently tried to embrace a more plant-based diet, as I've been saying, but bacon still smells really, really good to me. Yeah. I won't lie. Yeah. And, I've, and I'm not eating it, but I'm like, God damn.
1: Yeah, and some people don't like the smell of bacon, and so that metaphor falls flat for <laughs> them, you know, and, uh, you know, fine. But there are things, you know, it, and when I see couples who, who struggle over the mere fact that they're attracted to other people, that's, I just feel a lot of compassion for them, you know, yeah. because they've been fed this lie that if you love someone else, suddenly all your attraction for anyone else suddenly disappears. And that just isn't true. And, but people are, you know, it's, I, for me, it's very much like the original sin and and a lot of the the games that religions play with people where they take something totally natural, like masturbation, for example, say, God watches you. God sees you when you do that. And you're going to go to hell if you do that, unless you, you know, pay us or do whatever bullshit we tell you to do. It's a way of getting people in a hole they can never dig themselves out of. And in terms of relationship, if you think that you or your partner being attracted to other people means that you're in a bad relationship or that you're a bad person or there's something wrong with you or wrong with your partner, then you're doomed because that's always going to be there. That's always going to be, as long as you're alive, you're going to be attracted to other people. And from my perspective, that's no more surprising than saying, you know, you like Italian food. Well, that doesn't mean you don't like Thai food as well. You know? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you actually have it, you, you you use metaphors really, really well because there's a lot of them in the book and it's great for someone like me who's not an academic, mm-hmm. reading the book, you know, sometimes you go into some very, you know, Academic um, phrases and paragraphs, and it's very verbose and and sometimes I'm reading this and I and that's why it actually that's why I have to admit I've only read about half the book because I've had to go back and reread stuff and I've been highlighting and making notes. Um, But you're very good at taking you know something that sounds kind of complicated and then being like, okay, let's relate it to this metaphor, and then it kind of helps like the layman like myself Mm. make sense to me. And so I, I really appreciate those, those metaphors.
1: Yeah, it's, it's hard when you're writing a book about science and you're challenging a mainstream scientific view because you have to sort of show that you understand the science that you're disagreeing with and you've done the research and all that. But you don't, I mean, certainly this book, I didn't write this book for scientists. I wrote right. this book for normal people who are busy with their lives and, you know... Um, but it, but you have to be somewhere in between there, where the scientists won't just totally trash it as being uninformed, uh, and yet it can be accessible to people who aren't familiar with all the literature.
0: Exactly, and it wouldn't be a bestseller if the average person couldn't read it because right. there aren't that many <laughs> scientists in the world. You know, the rest most of yeah. us are like of average intelligence. <laughs> we can only you know consume certain literary.
1: Yeah, and and also scientists are less likely to change their views.
0: Why do you think that is?
1: Uh, Well, because the things that we spend our lives becoming experts in, we have a vested interest in being right. You know, we've invested a lot of time and effort in that. So it's harder to sort of drop it and say, oh, well, there, Oh, I never thought of it that way. You know, that's why scientific, I forget who said this, Kuhn or somebody said that uh, scientific revolution doesn't happen when a new, better idea comes along. It happens when the old scientists who believe the old idea finally die. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I'm wow. paraphrasing, but...
0: That's, that's, you know, that's true, though. Do you think that there's... Sometimes quite a big bit of ego wrapped up in yeah. that intelligence because, yeah. I mean, you know, generally scientists are smarter than the rest of us, and I can imagine that creates a sense of ego. And you, you're right. Like if you spend all this time researching something and you have one specific agenda that you're trying to prove, if you find evidence that might refute that, you don't necessarily want to follow along with that because. Yeah then it does kind of feels like you have to start over from scratch right. or you have to admit that you were wrong which nobody ever wants to do. Well,
1: one of the I mean one of the fields that is the slowest to change uh, in real radical ways is medicine. Mm. Right? And you yeah. think about it if you're you're going to a doctor who's 60 years old, it's quite possible that that doctor hasn't really read any cutting edge research in what, 35 years? You know, it's, you get out of med school, you start working and I'm not blaming anyone here or judging anyone. You know, people are working 50, 60 hours a week. They don't have time to sit back and go look at the, the cutting edge research that's coming out on, you know, nutrition or, or whatever their specialization is. And things are changing really quickly, uh, based on the research. So... I don't know. I, I don't. I don't think scientists are smarter than everyone else. Uh, I don't. I, I. I very. You and I met, talked about this a little before the mics went on, but I feel like we don't know what intelligence is, so it's really hard to say who's smarter than other people. And what do we mean by that? Some people are really good at calculations. But they don't know how to talk to other people.
0: Yeah, there's like, know? was it is it Gardner who had the nine levels of intelligence?
1: Yeah, mo- emotional intelligence, and yeah, there there are lots of different ways to measure. So I, I resist this, you know, any sort of idea that that any particular profession or class of people are, are particularly smart. Your producer is really smart when he's not knocking shit over. Yeah, I was over, just going to say he?
0: Ernie has no bodily <laughs> intelligence at the moment. <laughs> 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 um well, so, and I think also too, most people are just resistant to change in general, yeah, um which is actually why I loved your book so much because it one hundred percent challenged the views that I was so secure in with my wide breadth of knowledge and my deep scientific um, education that i 've had. But uh, I always believe that because I also too believe that monogamy doesn't seem to be natural. I am in a monogamous relationship, but my parents were swingers, right? So they were yeah. not monogamous, and they are still together. You know, uh, forty years later, they're they're just going to celebrate their fortieth wedding anniversary this year.
1: Shout out to my buddy Richard. Uh, do you know Richard Roberts? He's he's you shake, shook your head like you knew I, I wouldn't think you know him, but he. Recommended your podcast to me. Okay. And he was like, Hey, I don't know if you know this woman, Holly Randall, but you should really listen to this episode where she talks to her parents. Yeah. And I did. And I think that was before you and I were even in contact. Yeah. And then we, and then just coincidentally, like a week later, you sent me an email or something because of Asa Akira. Yeah. And so there was this weird little circle suddenly, like, wow, I just listened to you talking to your parents, and a week later, you email me.
0: That's so rare. See, and then it, it turns meant, out- We were meant, this podcast was meant to happen. I think
1: so. It was the universe. <laughs> and then it turns out that I had interviewed a guy named David Stansfield, yeah. who mentioned that he knew this lovely couple who lived in this house and near here, and he wanted me to meet them, and he went on about them a little bit, but he didn't say their full names, and he described the situation, and then uh, I just put, I just produced that a couple days ago. I'd recorded it maybe two months ago, and when I was listening to it, it was like, wait a minute, he's talking about Holly's. Parents. It's like it's so strange, so crazy. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah.
0: so Asa Kira, I first heard your name from Asa when she was on my podcast, and she was talking about your book. And so I went and I read it and I was immediately enthralled and then I tweeted saying like thank you so much Asa for re- recommending Chris Ryan's book I think it's incredible and then you responded back or you responded separately Oh that's um, not
1: happened
0: right that you enjoyed the podcast okay, with my parents right, and I right. thought that you had gone and listened to it because I had tweeted at you I didn't realize that you <laughs> totally found it independently it's independent. yeah, yeah. so funny yeah. and that's when um Angela White like hit me up because I just recorded a podcast right. with her. She was like, "Oh my god, Chris Ryan tweeted." She was very excited. Sorry, Angela, I totally like just blew your cool cover. But <laughs> um, I got you a present, so you can you can't be mad at me.
1: Yeah, <laughs> hey, Angela.
0: Um. So yeah. So so then then I was talking to my parents, and then David had mentioned to them that he knew you. And so the funny thing is, is so when I first met David, we were going up to my parents for um, dinner. You know, I go and I see them quite often. And we're driving up the driveway and it's a long driveway because they live on a ranch and there's this unfamiliar car in front of us. And I was with my boyfriend. I'm like, who are these people? And so they park, we park, they get out and it's this, um, this couple, this older couple. And I'm like, who are these people? I've never seen them before. And um, you know, my mom hadn't told me that anybody else was coming to dinner. And so we go in and my sister and my brother had just arrived as well. And so we asked my mom, we're like, who are these people? And my mom goes, oh, that's your father's friend, David. And all of us, just our jaws dropped to the floor. We're like, dad is friends? Because I swear to you, my father does not have any friends independent of my mother like really? never
1: no no well, your no, father no. sounded like such a friendly easygoing guy on he the podcast. He is. He
0: is, but he's very actually and he really kind of shone on that podcast. He really yeah. kind of came alive like when he talks about the past and um, you know when he reminisces I think is when he really comes to life. But uh, my father's always been he's not the most social guy. Mm. Uh, my mom's a social butterfly. She's the right. one who's always dragging him to parties. My mom's got a million friends. But my dad's just, you know, not like that. And my right. dad's a very, very intelligent man. So, um, usually he's not captivated by the general small talk. Right. So, I guess he met David. I'm not sure how. But they became friends, and they like go and have like coffee together and we just it was just so funny because myself and my siblings were just so shocked that my dad had a friend. It was just like this revelation <laughs> to us, but we were also like really excited we were like dad is a friend, oh <laughs> my God, dad is a friend
1: <laughs> isn't that cute
0: yeah, isn't that so dad cute is
1: little friend
0: so um yeah, so we were very happy oh. that uh, he and David met so um and then it's ironic that maybe you can go there and maybe. You can meet my dad and maybe you can maybe be his I other friend. I can be friends. your dad's
1: friend. And then my dad will have wow. two
0: friends.
1: That, that would be such an honor to be one of only two <laughs> friends. That's pretty special. Huh? It is,
0: isn't it? Yeah. So um, so circling back to um, what I was first talking about. So I always believed, like I said, with my um, my unrivaled education and science, That, you know, men and women were different because of biological reasons. And the reason that monogamy was difficult was specifically difficult for men because I believed that, you know, most men wanted to have sex with a lot of women because, you know, human nature had it that way so that they could procreate and they could spread their seed and that we could, um, you know, continue the human race and that women weren't necessarily so promiscuous because. They were the caretakers and they had to bear the children and that kind of thing. No, obviously, there's exceptions to all of these rules. I mean, my mother was very promiscuous. Um, I was certainly more promiscuous in my younger days. And obviously, I work in the adult industry. So I work with a lot of, you know, women that I guess one would consider at least sexually open, if not promiscuous. So I always thought that that was the reason. But then reading upon your book, you actually talk about how that's not what it is and it actually monogamy grew up alongside um, agriculture.
1: Yeah, that's that's the hypothesis of the book, that the possessiveness that we feel toward each other is an outgrowth of the general possessiveness that grew out of agriculture. Because before agriculture, and just to give people a, a general framework, uh, anatomically modern Homo sapiens have been around for at least 300,000 years. The, the late, in the book we say 200,000, but since the book came out, um, discoveries have been made that pushes it back another 100,000 years. So now we're looking at 300,000 years of people who have brains as big as ours, a little bigger than ours actually. The brain has shrunk about 10% since agriculture um, their uh, bodies are the size of ours, so they look like us, right? Mm-hmm. They think like us. They, as intelligent as we are, if not more so. Um, and agriculture only started about ten thousand years ago at the earliest. So you're looking at less than a fifth of our time uh, as a modern species living with farms and houses and domesticated animals and armies and. Hierarchical political structures and religions and all that kind of stuff. 95 plus percent of the time we've existed, we've been hunter gatherers. And hunter gatherers are strikingly similar wherever they are in the world, whether we're talking about Inuit in northern Alaska or in the Amazon or in Australia or whatever. In the Kalahari Desert in Africa, they have many striking similarities in the way they interact with each other. And one universal is what anthropologists call fierce egalitarianism. So they refuse to allow anyone to push them around, tell them what to do, restrict their uh, access to the resources that they need, and... The other is, and sort of a component of that, is sharing. So hoarding food is seen as one of the worst things you could possibly do. So if you go out and shoot a deer, let's say, and come back and say, no, I'm only going to share this deer with my wife and my kids, you'd get kicked out of the group immediately. So food is shared Access to to the spirit world is shared. Access to all the resources. Everything is shared. Everything's freely available. And yet scientists, mainstream scientists, have this view that sex is the one thing that's different from that. So we share absolutely everything uh, and we survive by sharing everything, but not my woman.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: My woman, right? Right. Well that makes no sense. Why Why would that be an exception? Who's Who's going to monitor that? The men all go off hunting and one guy stays home because he's sick. Who's going to make sure he's not having sex with all the women? <laughs> and it also uh, presupposes that hunter-gatherer people know that sex causes babies. They don't know that. There, There are people still in the world who thinks that who think that women get pregnant when they step over a smoky fire or when they eat uh, the wrong kind of animal at the wrong time of the moon. Or uh, one interesting case that we, well, it's a series of cases that we highlight in the book is what's called partible paternity. And these are societies that believe that a fetus is literally made of accumulated semen.
0: That's what I was just actually going to ask you about because I found that, that's one of one of the many highlights I put in I, <laughs> I have in your book, out at you and um, so yeah. So here you wrote anthropologist Stephen Beckerman and Paul Valentine explain pregnancy is viewed as a matter of degree, not clearly distinguished from gestation. All sexually active women are a little pregnant. Over time, semen accumulates in the womb. A fetus is formed. Further acts of intercourse follow, and additional semen causes the fetus to grow more. And so then you go on to say that so these women will typically typically seek out m- sex with an assortment of men. She'll solicit contributions from the best hunters, the best storytellers, the funnest, the funniest, the kindest, the best looking, the strongest, and so on and so on, in the hopes her child will literally absorb the essence of each. I love that. Yeah, it's like you know what it kind of takes. Um, a bukkake to like a whole new level.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it does. It does more like cream pie, I think. Yeah, I was going to say bukkake is real. all over
0: your face, it's, but yeah. Or you know, there's the gokun, which actually comes into a cup and then you're supposed to drink it. But
1: uh, maybe you just uh, yeah. Am
0: I educating you on something now?
1: Well, I know about the two girls one cup thing, but yeah, I but didn't. That's poop. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, well, it shows I never watched it. I, I didn't guess. watch it either. I thought I thought it was a cum thing.
0: Oh no, that wouldn't be nearly as offensive. I've like shot girls shooting drinking come out of a cup, but like that's that's Uh, nothing.
1: Come on. Well, as an (laughs) award-winning porn star myself, I probably should know these things. People who are watching this on video, I don't know. You have this behind a paywall or something?
0: No, 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 no.
1: Uh, Well, if anyone's watching on video, they can see my porn award. It's up there behind you. Well,
0: we can the AVN award. We can look at it. There's nothing dirty about it.
1: No, it's a wonderful. It's I'm it's like the highlight of my CV. I'm so excited. Say. So
0: you you need to explain this to me because I think my dad mentioned this to me and I was like, "What do you mean? You, I haven't even won an AVN award." And I've been in the business for almost 20
1: years. <laughs> and you're like porn royalty. Yeah,
0: well, apparently not. Yeah. So yeah. you won a AVN award in 2016 for best non-sex performance. We could change that story Chris. of my life. Huh? I can make you a star. Yeah, That's I'm all, all I'm saying. I don't know. I think I should quit while I'm ahead. <laughs> um, Christopher Ryan, PhD,
1: PhD, isn't that marriage nice?
0: two point out that Adam really classed
1: it up? Yeah.
0: So I, I kind yeah. of need to go watch this. This is very... Can I hold this for a little you bit? You can
1: hold it, yeah. Make,
0: pretend like it's mine for it's, a second. It's an I impressive... I will hold one of these one day.
1: <laughs> we can just stick a different plaque on the front, and, you know. <laughs> just uh,
0: scratch this out and like put my name on there.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. I love that award. It's like winning a AVN award for best non-sex performance is... I don't know. It's like slowest sprinter in the Olympics or something, you know? It's like it's like the guy who trips over the most hurdles or something. It's almost losing is what I'm saying.
0: So what can tell us about your role? I'm very excited to hear about this.
1: Uh well, this this uh friend of ours was producing the the film Marriage 2.0. Which friend? Um
0: Oh, they're a really good friend of yours, huh? <laughs> like we haven't—I haven't spoken. <laughs> if to you only them in had one friend like my father did, <laughs> I, then you would remember I, their I name. Know,
1: <laughs> I know, I know, I don't know, look it up. Um, uh, yeah, oh, that's embarrassing. <laughs> like, I'm really bad with names, but anyway. So, so he was doing this film, and uh, he asked if I'd be willing to do a cameo in it mm-hmm. because the story is. The couple in the film are opening up their relationship. They're kind of bored and whatever, and so they're experimenting with opening their relationship. And they go through some of the typical challenges people have dealing with jealousy and insecurity and all that and trying to work out, like, okay, what's legit, what isn't, and, you know, what are our rules going to be and all that. And uh, the woman, played by India Summer or Summers, I don't know. Summer. Summer. She's a documentary filmmaker. Mm -hmm. And so she decides as a way to sort of deal with the questions she's having to make a movie. So there's a movie within the movie. And in that, she interviews some authors and and people, um, you know, who have opinions on these things. And I'm one of the people. So I play myself not with myself but <laughs> myself and Casilda's in it as well my my wife so so there's this scene where she's inter- we're on a set and she's interviewing us about sex at dawn and you know all the science and then she starts to cry and and like breaks and you know runs off the scene off the set and then the next scene is I'm in the kitchen with her and we're sort of having a a heart to heart chat and um apparently the uh the academy thought that that was an award-winning performance.
0: <laughs> I mean, you're such a fascinating guy that when you play yourself, you you get an award for it.
1: Well, it wasn't hard to, you know, immerse myself in the role. I'll you tell you that. You just have an
0: award-winning personality.
1: I think that's what it is. Yeah. yeah. I'm like the Jack Nicholson of porn. I can only play myself. <laughs> uh, you know.
0: That's true. He really does just kind of play himself, doesn't he?
1: There's a great anecdote about him when when he first came i read a biography of him years ago and when he first came to la he was a writer he was trying to make it writing screenplays and uh he was sharing an apartment with a, a wannabe actor and he wasn't selling any screenplays and one day the his buddy said like dude why don't you just come to this casting you know like maybe you'll get a role as an extra at least make some money you know whatever and so he went and he read for a really small part and the producer said to him, uh, Mr. Nicholson, we don't need you for this role, but if we ever do need you, we'll need you very badly. Wow. And I thought, well, that's such a prescient thing to say. Yeah. You know, it's like, you do that. And if we right. ever need that, we'll call you because right. nobody else does that as well as you do. Right. But that's really all you can do, you know? Wow. And it's and he made a career on doing that, you know, being that's, Jack.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. I, it's funny because I actually feel like this is an appropriate time to bring up the fact, since we are talking about the question of monogamy and since I did mention that my parents were swingers, my mom totally banged Jack
1: Nicholson. Good for her. Yeah. She, I think she might have mentioned that. on the. She mentioned... There was Jack Nicholson. And I remember Jim Brown was the only one yep. she thought was noteworthy.
0: Right. Warren Beatty. Warren Beatty. And Bill Cosby.
1: Bill Cosby. And yep. Hugh Hefner, did she ever? Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah, who hasn't? Larry Flynn. I think my was, mom's probably banged Hugh Hefner. <laughs>
0: who hasn't banged Hugh I, I had after. a great
1: moment where I, I did this thing. Uh, Dan Savage was shooting a pilot here in mm-hmm. LA, and he it was like a panel show, and he asked me to, to come on. And... Um, There's a studio audience. And so after we shot it, we were sort of talking with people in the audience and Ron Jeremy was there. And my mom was there. And there was a moment where my mom, I was talking to Ron Jeremy and my mom was like, well, introduce me to your friend. I was like, mom, this is Ron Jeremy. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like... Wow, I never thought that moment would occur in my life where I'd be introducing my mom to Ron Jeremy.
0: Isn't life funny that way?
1: Yeah. Thank God she was like, oh, hi, Mr. She wasn't like, yeah, of course, it's Ron Jeremy. <laughs> 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 That's what your mom would have known. Him.
0: Yeah, oh, my mom knows Ron. Yeah, our, sure. our moms
1: are are very different.
0: My mom is different than most moms, I, I must say. Yeah. There's not a lot of people out there like her. Um. So going back to your book. Yeah. So uh, what I so okay. Talking about how the idea of monogamy rose along with uh, agriculture, you talk about how a big reason for that is the question of parentage. Because with agriculture came the idea of owning property and actually passing down property to your next of kin. And so then you wanted to be absolutely sure that who you were passing your property down to was actually your child when as before in the hunter and gathering days when people didn't really own property they didn't own things everything was shared as a community the raising of children was shared as a community and right. so the idea of who who your father was didn't matter and you even talked about how you know some isolated tribes that anthropologists went and studied they would ask them who is your father and they would say these are all my fathers you know we are we are like there was a sense of just The entire community was a family as opposed to these isolated groups. And um, I just thought that was really interesting.
1: Yeah, and there are so many different ways of tracing lineage. And in most hunter-gatherer groups, uh, biological parentage is not really even a concept. Right. They're clan membership. So you could be part of the same tribe and even in the same band, right, who spend most of their time traveling together um but you know if i'm in, i'm born into the otter otter clan and you're in the otter clan then we're considered to be more closely related than someone who's in the bear clan right, it, right. and th- this idea of dna and you know genetic packages and all that isn't really an issue and you know it's sort of extrapolating out of evolutionary theory it's been assumed that it has always been an issue that, um, you know, because a lot of species, there is a lot of competition between males and mate guarding behavior and, um, you know, fights to the death in, in some species. And so it's sort of been a, assumed that that was also intrinsic to human evolution. But when you actually look at the way hunter-gatherers behave uh, and their belief systems in light of also primatological research you know bonobos and chimpanzees particularly that are very closely related to us and you look at our bodies and the story that our bodies tell about our ancestors sexual behavior it all becomes pretty clear that we are not a species where the males fight each other and the winner has access to the females like with gorillas
0: because gorillas have small penises
1: that's it you can see by the the size of our penis, the size of our testicles, the fact that the testicles are outside our bodies, um, the size of the males relative to the females, um, body dimorphism, you can see it also in the fact that we're highly social. Gorillas and other harem um, breeding primates don't live in complex social groups with multiple males in the same group. And it makes sense because they'd all be fighting all the time, right? Right. So... There are some. There are over 300 species of primates. It, you know, scientists differ on what constitutes a species, so there's no uh, exact number right now. But uh, of those, many live in complex social groups, and there is not a single primate that lives in a complex social group that is a harem-based or monogamous. So it, you know, it seems if you just have a, a sort of a cursory understanding of biology it can seem like oh you know men fight over women and males fight over females that's just the way it is i saw it on blue planet you know um but if you actually look at primates particularly highly intelligent social primates or dolphins are another example um there are very few animals that have sex for non-reproductive reasons most animals only have sex when the female's ovulating and it's just a few times a year and the you know Chances of um, pregnancy are very high. Humans, bonobos, bonobos, chimps, and dolphins are the exceptions. And they're all highly social, highly intelligent. Right. So we all use sex for social reasons, uh, not primarily for reproductive reasons.
0: Right. And so, yeah, you were talking about how with um, bonobos, how with their enlarged penis and their larger testes, that it seems like the fight for... Um, insemination actually occurs within the body right. as opposed to outside of the body with gorillas yeah. which is why gorillas are so much bigger right, the males exactly. are so much bigger than the women and um, I think you also talked too about um, how when men come they give off like two to eight spurts Right, and so I think you said something about the first spurt kind of coats the walls And then, like, like the the kamikaze sperm, because like, is there some kind of like Baker?
1: Yeah, Uh, I think Robin Baker is his name, who sort of went and ran with that with the kamikaze, and he sort of saw sperm cells as like a rugby team with blockers and runners and all this stuff. Um, I don't think that's been scientifically validated.
0: Sounds really interesting, though.
1: But uh, there, what you're referring to that you know we do go there in the book is. There is a lot of research showing that the first spurt in an ejaculation has a chemical that is um, corrosive uh, to any pre-existing sperm.
0: Got it, okay, that makes
1: sense. So if the the second guy is coming, his sperm will attack any sperm that it finds already in the woman's reproductive tract. And then the middle spurts are his most viable sperm cells. And then the last spurt is a protective chemical that's sort of anticipating the first spurt from the next guy. That's so interesting. So there's evolutionary evidence of multiple insemination. Yeah.
0: And then that led um, you to, and this is where I ended and I got really excited about this part, about the science behind why we like gangbang porn so much.
1: Well, it, yeah, it seems to align with the notion that we evolved in the context of uh, multi, multi-male, multi-female mating, which is the you know sort of technical scientific word for it. Um, but, you know, if you think it, it's weird, if you think, okay, uh, totally straight, you know, and I, I think s- sexual orientation is on a spectrum, of course. and um, But if straight men, why would straight men want to watch three dudes and one woman, right? Like, it right. doesn't make sense. If you're into women's bodies, you would think... If you're a straight guy, you'd want to watch three women and one guy, or, that is the question or no guy. That you know? has
0: been raised by a lot of my male friends um, that don't like gangbang porn. They're like, "Why would I want to watch all that dick?" And I actually <laughs> love gangbang porn. I don't shoot it, but I like to watch it. And I love all the dick. But I assume this is just because I'm a woman, because I'm like the more the better.
1: Do you like gay male porn?
0: No. I mean, it's a of dick on. in it. That's true. That's true. It's it's pretty hot. I mean, yeah. it can be hot, but it's not really like my. I I want to see like a woman. Yeah, because I, I think you know what it is. I want to imagine that I'm that woman. Right. That's what yeah. It is.
1: Yeah. You gotta have someone to yeah. to relate to. Yeah. I. So. So I'm not saying. You know, we sort of threw that in as sort of an amusing, like maybe this explains it. You know, but it's not like there's no evidence. I'm not claiming this is evidence, but it does seem that. Okay, if we evolved, you know, around fires every night for over a million years, we've been sitting around a fire with people that presumably we know and love, and everybody looks good in firelight. You know? <laughs> There's a reason for that. That's that's an evolved preference.
0: That's true. Like the red light district. Uh,
1: exactly. There's yeah. a reason they're they're red lights, uh, and you know, it's it turns us on to see other people having sex, right? right. Generally. Right. And so it, you know, there are lots of things that start to fit together and make sense. One of them is why gangbang porn would be interesting to men and, and stimulating for men. Another is why women are capable of having multiple orgasms and men aren't. Or right. why women are slower and sort of more, uh, I don't know, the pace of women's sexual response might be slower to get. Going, but once it's going, it can go a long time. You know. Right. So we say in the book, men are like sprinters and women are marathon runners. It's, right. Uh, you know, to say who is more sexual is kind of a nonsense question. It depends what you're measuring. Um, and uh, and it also ta- you know the role of the orgasm for women. It's a big scientific mystery. Why do women even have orgasms? You know, there's a lot of debate about that. And uh, until the 70s, I think. It was assumed that humans were the only mammal in which females have orgasm. And then women started getting into primatology and, and um, studying primates. And they were like, well, look, at sh- that female macaque is obviously coming, you know, yeah. whereas the male scientists never saw it. And... um so now it's understood that that other female primates have orgasm. But still, why? Like the male orgasm is associated with ejaculation, right. so it has a function, but the female doesn't need to have an orgasm to get pregnant. So why? It doesn't make any sense. So one of the things that we're looking at in, in Sex at and the research is that the woman's orgasm triggers a lot of changes, physiological changes in her body that give an advantage to the sperm of the male that provokes the orgasm. So if she... So she could have sex with three different guys, but if the third guy who you would say has the least chance of getting her pregnant because the other two guys are already... Their boys are already in the game. uh, (laughs) If she really likes him... Right. Or even if it's not a question of liking him, there's something about the way he smells that works for her because that's another thing that we talk about in the book, how important the women's sense of smell is in choosing the right mate. And that's sort of a subconscious thing, but we can get back to that. But anyway, for some reason, her body responds to that guy. She comes, then he comes. His sperm cells have a huge advantage, even though they're late to the game.
0: That's so interesting because
1: the pH of her of her vagina changes that in a way that is not hostile to sperm cells when she orgasms when she has an orgasm yeah oh wow yeah that's and incredible. if he comes with her even better Which
0: always happens in porn
1: always happens in <laughs> porn uh, because of what's called upsuck. she there are muscle contractions and her cervix. Uh, I think it's every seven tenths of a second actually pulls sperm cells up toward the ovum. Um, So it's not just they don't have to swim; they're getting like a boost. They're getting like a little turbo, a little turbo charge there. Why,
0: man? I mean, I wish like I've never been able to come at the same time as a partner, and that just I feel like that's like the ultimate romantic Mm. ending. But I feel like that just never happens for people. You're looking at me like, hmm, my research has proved otherwise. Hmm. <laughs> well, I think I mean it
1: I, I think it really comes down to the man's um how do I say it? Ability this? to hang on. Yeah, like <laughs> you know, you're yeah. When I mean when I first Became physically sexual, and I first started jerking off. Basically, I I recognized very quickly that the key to this whole thing is controlling that. Mm. And so that was the so I was like a it was like a martial arts thing for me. It was like
0: (laughs) I love how you approached even masturbation with a scientific method.
1: Oh no, it's (laughs) way beyond that. I was like from from fourteen on. So I was—I had this girlfriend, my first sexual partner, and she could come from me going down on her, but she didn't come from intercourse. Yeah, and I was like, "That's interesting. Yeah. What? No, what?" And so, you know, I wasn't threatened by it or anything. I just thought, "Hmm, yeah, you know, why is that?" So I started reading and, you know, the clitoris and this contact and this movement. So we tried all these different positions and then I went out and I bought French ticklers and ribbed condoms and then I bought vibrators and Benoit balls. And I'm talking 15 years old, I'm ordering this stuff <laughs> and I had this, this lock box at home so my mother wouldn't find, you know. Oh my, oh my. It was like a toolbox that it was like, why do, what is that locked box in your closet? Don't worry about it, mom. You don't want to know. Um, and this girl was kind of uptight, uh, but in this one area, she was like, "Fine, whatever, you yeah. know, you know, whatever." So I was running all these experiments on her, trying to, you know, <laughs> figure it out. So yeah, from a, it's sort of not surprising that I ended up writing this book. Yeah, you know, 30, 40 did years. You, down did the you Did you ever
0: figure it out? Because <laughs> I have the same problem.
1: Um, well, I, I, what I figured out in her, ca- no, I mean, I didn't figure it out. We broke up when I was oh, sixteen. Until or you,
0: were, you, weren't able to complete your research.
1: <laughs> Not with her. I, I continued <laughs> the research with other subjects. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you want to have a large subject pool, so yeah, you can have that's, true. Validity, that's true. Statistical validity. You want know? to
0: be able to eliminate variables.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, she was. Um, in her case, I would say. I'd say the odds of her listening to this podcast are like one in 700 trillion, so...
0: So you feel pretty safe talking I, about it. I think it. so.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: Plus, we didn't mention her name.
1: Yeah, she she was from a pretty religious family. Mm. And I think that... You know, there's you haven't gotten to this yet because it's in the second part of the book, second half of the book, but the research on uh, female sexual response is really interesting um, because I think culture plays a much bigger role in, well, certainly uh, in orgasmic um, response in women than it does in men. Uh, So I think that, you know, women feeling any sense of discomfort um, with their bodies, with their sexuality, with, uh, you know, anything really can just totally you know, knock the train off the tracks. Whereas men are going to come, you know, it's like, you know, fire alarm. All right, just let me come quick. (laughs) Then, then, then I'll get out of the building, you know, like whatever. It doesn't really, yeah. I think Jerry Seinfeld said that, uh, men are like firemen and women are like fire. And he was, he said, it was like, uh, you know, men are ready to go at any moment, you know, just, you know, ring the bell and they're, we're going boys, we're going. Whereas women, like the conditions have to be right.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You
1: know, like you gotta have, everything's gotta be right. But then if things are right, you know, you can get a a real blaze going, but the thing, everything has to be just right.
0: Yeah. Right, yeah, I mean, the one thing that I really got out of your book is, you know, I think we all know that cultural influences really Play a part in how we behave sexually, how we see ourselves, how we see relationships, all of those things. Um, but I, I just felt like, I don't know, reading this made me kind of really think about how incredibly influential it is. You know, and yeah. I like to think that I'm a pretty sexually liberal person myself, obviously being raised in the family that I was raised in, but this really kind of helped me see how. Just, you know, American culture has played a big
1: part. Well, that's it. Yeah, and, and also, like, the fact that your parents are so chill doesn't necessarily, you know, because so many kids grow up defining themselves in opposition to their parents, right? I don't know if that's your case. Yeah, yes, my um, mom
0: used to always joke that she would always hope that her children would rebel against her and be completely opposite and, like, go into some yeah. kind of academic... You yeah. know, sides. I mean, my brother's well, a lawyer and my you sister's a, writer, a nurse. So yeah, she did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so she actually never really wanted me to follow her into this industry. My brother and my sister, like I said, are not even remotely connected to adult. Mm. They both uh um like I said, my brother's a lawyer, my sister's a nurse. Um but um yeah, so so she used to always kind of joke about that. Though even though my parents were, you know, pretty sexually free, I they actually weren't comfortable talking about sex with us when we were kids. Right. Like I never got the birds and the bees talk. Really? So there is definitely still some repression there.
1: Yeah, yeah. And just being American. I mean, I I think I mentioned earlier, I lived in Spain for 25 years, pretty much my whole adult life. And uh, being back in America, it's just so uh, clear how messed up Americans, American culture is about sexuality. Yeah. Well, my
0: mom's British and my dad's South African, right? So they, but my mom, you know, grew up in a you know nice middle class kind of conservative yeah. English upbringing. Britain and, is. Uh, um, my dad grew up during the apartheid era. And those in are both South pretty Africa. uptight countries. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So yeah. they 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 weren't raised in a necessarily sexually free right. environment either. Right. So.
1: Yeah, yeah, just being American. There, I mean, one of the, the things that we talk about in the book that was just, that sticks with me is, um, I think it might've been Meredith Chivers who did this research, but um, women were sitting at a desk and they had um, uh, like a meter that would that went from zero to 10, right? And they're watching different um Videos, And so the idea was that you dial up the meter to indicate how turned on you are by the video. And then they also had, uh, I can't remember how to say this word, it's like plethysmograph or something like that. It's, it's basically like um, a very narrow dildo that uses, I think it's infrared light to measure genital blood flow in women in men it's easy you're measure you know you just monitor erection right but in women you have to put it inside the vagina and it measures how much blood flow is going into the walls of the vagina
0: God this sounds like the beginning of a porn scene
1: yeah you sorry could, you could, we can <laughs> write it together a oh, yeah God, that sounds like a, and you get a nice red light yeah, there. Wow, I see it. it's
0: a script like already a glass, writing itself in my head it's like a
1: test tube. yeah yeah um, Anyway, so and what they did, and they did this with the men as well, and they did it with but with the women, it was interesting it was uh, straight women uh, and gay women, and then straight women straight men and gay men, and what they found was that they showed like straight porn, um, gay male porn, lesbian porn, they also showed like <clears throat> an attractive guy working out in the gym and an attractive woman walking down the beach, sort of like attractive people in non-sexual situations. And they also showed bonobos fucking, <laughs> which I thought was a nice touch. Throw that in there. <laughs> you do love your bonobos. <laughs> it's hard not to love bonobos. Uh, they're so lovable. Uh, but anyway, they, uh, what they found was that in the straight men, the gay men, and the lesbians, what they were turned on by was what you would think they were turned on by, right? So the lesbians were turned on by the lesbian porn, totally not into the gay male porn. And also that what they indicated with the dial corresponded with what their bodies were saying, right? The blood flow to the genitals. But straight women, the correspondence was off. So the straight women were dialing up what you would think they were turned on by, right? The, the straight porn and uh, the guy in the gym and whatever. But it turns out that they were in fact turned on by everything. That is, that's amazing. Physiologically. Yes. Right? Now you can say, okay, but a woman might lubricate and it doesn't mean she's turned on. I'm not a woman. I can't really comment on that. But the fact is that physiologically they were responding to all these different stimuli visual stimuli but their conscious mind was saying i'm not turned on by that i'm only turned on by this i'm not turned on by that so there's like a disconnect between the physiological response and the and the awareness in a lot of straight women
0: well and if you were going to try to use the argument that you know they were just lubricating and not turned on then you have the lesbians who are women To compare that against, so that sounds like that wouldn't that would kind of
1: fall flat. I mean, I think the reason that this research is problematic for people is gets into you know domination fantasies, rape fantasies, things like that, and you say, okay, well, you know, a woman's physiological response doesn't mean she wants that to happen.
0: That's one hundred percent true, and I've talked about this and I've written about this. Because I've totally had rape fantasies and um, domination fantasies, and I have some sick and twisted fantasies, but I don't actually want those things to happen to me. Right. Like when you have a fantasy, it's it's in a controlled environment, like in your head, or if you decide to play it out in real life. So, and in a situation of of real rape, you know, you're obviously, you have no control, and that's what's so terrifying about it. But did you do any more research? And it's not
1: George Clooney.
0: Right, right. <laughs> well, actually, I, I, I don't know. I don't imagine George Clooney. Oh,
1: you're not. Actually,
0: they're always kind of faceless. They don't what they look like doesn't matter to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, did you do any more? I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I know it's kind of a touchy subject, especially on, on why women have rape fantasies.
1: Uh, it's yeah. I don't. I. It's hard to to really get into it. Because rape is is culturally defined. Okay. And so when you, you know, all this stuff is culturally, homosexuality is culturally defined. Right. Um, we think we know what we're talking about when we talk about homosexuality, but there are cultures. Well, look at the ancient Greeks
0: and Romans. Right. It was much more accepted then. And, and, and there's, you know, uh, all kinds of historical figures that, you know, we're into men.
1: Sure. And and like in Papua New Guinea, there, there are tribes there that believe that semen contains the essence of masculinity. So the young boys who want to grow up to be the most badass warriors suck as much dick as possible so that they'll be macho.
0: That's amazing. God, people are so fascinated. Right.
1: So now we look at that and we're like, well, that's gay. Right. But... They in within their cultural framework, you're like that's not gay. I'm macho, right? You know, I'm I'm becoming manly. That's right. what I do. You know in our culture it's like uh you want to be macho what do you do you play football well that's a lot of time yeah. naked with other dudes man right. a lot of butt padding yeah, I don't know Yeah they do they
0: slap each other's ass You know a lot,
1: or don't you they? or you you're in the military like okay hmm right. Yeah like those uniforms don't you I mean I don't know I'm not I'm not you know giving anyone a hard time I'm just saying that these things are very malleable and rape is another one like orangutans, the which are one of the great apes, um, the the way they have sex is the males chase the females through the treetops until they catch her and she's screaming and they have sex. We look at that and we say, "Fuck, that's rape." That mm-hmm. male, he's bigger. He chases her. She's running away. She's screaming. But that is the normal mating behavior of that animal. So when we call that rape, we're applying something to it. How do we know what that experience is, right? How do we? How do we even uh, apply language to it? It's very complicated to get into that stuff.
0: And it's interesting too to look at like old kind of um you know myths that have perpetuated in society for so long like look at like the vampire myth you know there's a lot of like yeah. questionable dominance and rape wrapped up in that but so many women find the idea of yeah. vampirism sexy i mean i do too it's like this this man he comes and he overpowers you and he sucks your blood and he drains you and <laughs> kind of, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's, there's some very yeah. like iffy kind of.
1: I, yeah, I never got that vampire thing. I, 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 maybe that's a more of a woman thing, but I think as, you know the the rape fantasy. I think one aspect of it that that we can talk about pretty, you know, without uh, getting into evolutionary stuff where it gets really dicey, is that. Because women have been shamed for their sexuality for so long in right. Western culture, I mean, we're talking thousands of years, right. and not just shame like you know you're a slut, but like you might be killed.
0: Yeah, you might you know, you're a witch. And your we're children burn you can be taken
1: and, away from you, and yeah. yeah, I mean, really, the worst possible punishments.
0: And you look at like Middle Eastern societies—they stone you to
1: death. Still doing it. Yeah. They'll stone you to death for the crime of having been raped. Yeah. Right, I mean, that's how bad insanity, it is, right? right? So within that context, it's not surprising that a woman's sexual response could be filtered through being powerless. Mm-hmm. Because being powerless means you can't say no. I you see what can't you're saying. refuse it. So
0: then, like you don't, you don't have to have responsibility right. for having engaged in that sexual activity, and God forbid, possibly having and have actually enjoyed it. Right. So society's kind of taken right. female desire and created this skewed sort of fantasy around like
1: rape. You're not allowed to enjoy it. Right. You're not allowed to to want it. Right. So the only way you can have it is if it's forced on you. Right. And then it's not really your fault. So that's the one place where you can, that animal part of you can be expressed. Right. Yeah.
0: And then just to be clear, like for our listeners, like obviously we're not advocating rape. Rape is a horrible thing. Rape is, um, you know, an incredibly traumatic thing. But we're just talking about why... There is rape fantasies out there that women have, and a lot of women have it. And I've talked to so many women that um, that feel this way, and and they are kind of as equally confused about it as I am. So it's just an interesting thing to try to explore. But you do get into like kind of a sticky gray area, and yeah. people get real touchy about that. Well, so. people's
1: experience is is personal; it's their experience. But you know. Um, talking about the cultural definition of these things, there's a fantastic short essay written by an Australian anthropologist, a woman, Christine something, I don't remember her last name, Um, but it's called, I think the title is It's Only a Penis. And she's writing, she's a feminist and, and she's writing from a feminist perspective. She was living with a tribe in Papua New Guinea and at night a man snuck into a woman's hut and tried to crawl into bed with her. And she woke up and started screaming and hitting him. And he tripped over the mosquito net and sort of fell out the window. And it turned into this Keystone Cop situation. And the next morning, she, she'd heard the ruckus at night. And then the next morning, she was there with the other women and they were all laughing and you know mimicking this guy, tripping and falling and all that. And and she said, why are you laughing? Like he tried to rape you. And they were like, what? you know, she in their language, there was no word for that, that she knew. So she explained like he was trying to, he wanted to have sex with you. And the woman was like, yeah, yeah. And she was like, well, but you didn't want him to. And he wanted to anyway. And, you know, that's a crime and he could have hurt you. and And the women were just looked at her, totally confused and sort of like feeling bad for her and and one of the women said "Christine how could he hurt you it's only a penis" wow and then they
0: that is a ama- that is wow that is so amazing that is
1: so it's a really interesting i'd really recommend it i can find it for you before yeah, I would you love leave to read and it's it. available online anyone who wants to find it I, it's their pdfs out there but she gets into this whole thing about how in in the western cultural paradigm we see male sexuality as aggressive invasive penetrating powerful and female sexuality is vulnerable passive um you know uh uh, very like fragile and that that's just the way we choose to look at it that's not the way it is in itself right and a lot of cultures look at it totally differently for example At this point in history, in Western culture, we see male sexualities being insatiable and, oh, you know. But in many parts, even in Western um, culture, in many uh, historical eras, the women were seen as the insatiable. The women were the one who would corrupt a decent young man who was, you know, going to be a priest and this crazy harlot would come and drag him off into the bushes and have her way with him. You know, now the only place you see that kind of motif is in porn. Right, Right. insatiable, you know, Nina Hartley or something.
0: Yeah, because we're kind of because porn is so afraid of pushing, you know, sexual boundaries too far and to touch on those touchy subjects like rape and stuff like that. Now we can we're allowed to reverse the roles mm. where the women can be sexually aggressive. Right. But we have to be very Melfs. careful yeah, with where's, the men where's being the sexually dilfs? aggressive. I know, right?
1: <laughs> In jail. That's where they are. <laughs> exactly.
0: And it's interesting too what you just brought up about how, you know, male sexuality is seen as penetrating and aggressive and women's sexuality is seen as fragile um even when we in you know our little porno culture talk about the difference between doing girl girl and boy girl like mm-hmm. it 's not such a big ideal to do girl girl, but then once you start doing boy girl, which is of course you know having sex with men, girl girls having sex to girls that 's like the next step and that and that 's almost like you know some people consider like that's when you can ruin yourself you know um. so like so we'll normally say to a girl when she comes into the industry we'll say all right start in the industry and then start off doing solo girl if you can which you really can't do anymore because there's no more work in that line of work cuz since the internet everybody just wants to see banging start off girl girl get yourself sit girl girls not that big of a deal you know, and do some girl girl do girl girl as long as you can, and then take that next step to boy girl when you're really ready to throw yourself into the industry and, and make more money, and then like really solidify yourself as a porn star. And I'll even find myself saying when people say to me like, "Oh, she's a hardcore porn star," I'll be like, "She only does girl girl. It's mm. you know, it's no big deal. Like yeah. it's like because it's like it's not sex. Which like, is girl, funny, girl is not sex. Presumably, like, boy, a lot
1: of these women aren't bi. Right. So exactly. what you're doing is saying, you know, start off by faking it. Right. Not that they're not faking it with guys too often, right, but right. at least if you're if you're straight, you're you know doing the thing you would be doing whereas right. if you're with girl girl it's like, well
0: But it like changes you, you know, and and you'll penetration
1: have penetration is yeah, a really exactly. big deal. exactly. I mean, yeah. it's like
0: once they get and you know, again penetrated by a penis. I mean, you can get penetrated by a dildo they can get fucked in the ass with a strap on, but it's yeah. okay because it's just girl girl. Right. But once you introduce a man into it, it like right. changes everything, you know. And and girls who only do girl girl will then go and start shooting boy girl, and you know some of their fans will be all up in arms about it. Don't you'll
1: ruin yourself. No. <laughs> well, that's all that's sex ne- sex negativity, you know. Yeah. I mean, this essay is really fast. It's It's like ten pages. It's not a long thing, mm-hmm. but she gets into this like how. As, as a feminist she feels that buying into this notion of the power of the penis disempowers women mm-hmm. makes them sort of perpetual victims and and now in light of this me too thing and the you know some of the craziness that's happening on the fringes of that I th- it's a really important thing to think about you know like we want to empower women but are we empowering women by saying you know what Aziz Ansari did is criminal behavior.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with you. I didn't believe that he should have been raked through the... He was just a or horny, kind of creepy guy. Like, I mean, I, we've, I've been in that kind of situation before. But is, is
1: it even creepy? Like she said she wasn't... After going down on him and him yeah. going down on her, she was like, hey, I'm not really into this. And he's like, all right, let's just put our clothes on and watch TV. Is that creepy?
0: Yeah, but then she turned around and, like, he had his dick out. But then again,
1: (laughs) well, that's creepy.
0: But then again, he, like, I guess he started massaging her shoulders. And I remember she said, she's like, you know, I felt like he was maybe just trying to, like, calm me down and loosen me up. I'm like, girl, he was massaging your shoulders because he was trying to get you back in the mood. Are you kidding me?
1: Right. And, like, like, if you're not into it, what are you doing in his apartment? Not not victim blaming, but I mean, clearly, this guy's very famous. Yeah. He, He's not having trouble hooking up with women. She knows that. Obviously, she knows that. He invites her, hey, let's have dinner. Okay, let's meet at my place for some wine first. Right. Come on.
0: Yeah. I think a lot of it comes down to how bad we are communicating as a society with each other about sex and about... um, you know, our, our our sexual agendas. I mean, I've found myself in situations where a guy is trying to push for sex and I don't know, you know, I don't want to just say no because maybe he'll be mad. He won't like me. We'll have this awkward situation, you know, and I, I want to just kind of try to drop a ton of hints until he gets it. And a lot of times he doesn't get it. But it's like, why can't I just come out and say, you know what, I don't want to do this. I'm not comfortable with this because I'm afraid of some awkward confrontation.
1: Well, it is awkward. Yeah. Right, rejection is awkward. Yeah, and and I think we just have to cop to that.
0: Yeah,
1: both both sides. You know, it, it's awkward to to say to someone who wants a deeper connection with you than you want with them, whether it's sexual or not. Right, right. right. I mean, if you have a friend who's like, "Hey, let's go," you know, "let's go, let's go hang out tomorrow night." You're like, "Yeah, not really feeling." You know, it's like, you know, we work together. I don't really want to hang out. Like, that's a Awkward conversation,
0: right? Right,
1: you know. But for some reason, in sex, it becomes weaponized, or at least it is now in America. And you know, and I'm I'm certainly sensitive to the fact that you know sometimes women are dealing with men who have power over them, right? And by having that conversation, it can have professional repercussions, and right. you know that that needs to be
0: the Harvey Weinstein situation yeah, is a whole different issue.
1: Yeah, but with Aziz it's like come on or the or Al Franken like oh the woman asks him for a picture he puts his arm on her waist his hand is on her waist and that's why he has to leave the senate cuz he squeezed her waist in a fucking photo. Like I I don't that's yeah. nuts. You know, and I don't know if you read that the, that was the, the the last straw that you know, everybody pushed Al Franken out of the Senate over. And she said, he put his hand on her waist and he said, she said, I don't even let my husband um, touch me that way in public. (laughs) Jesus Are you kidding, lady? Yeah. Like, come on.
0: Yeah, I think that, you know, some women have definitely gotten a little bit too caught up in... um that whole thing, and but, you know, I mean, I don't know. What everybody's, are you going to do?
1: Yeah, it's America. <laughs> and I'm in trouble, I mean, luckily I'm in a position, I don't have a job to lose, so.
0: Yeah.
1: And my public reputation is already trash.
0: What, from, well, we all know it. Slipped by <laughs> that, your AVN, your AVN award. My AVN Once award. Once you won that AVN award, all your credibility went out the window. It's all
1: downhill from here, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But no, I mean, living in Spain, you know, since I was in my 20s, uh, it's just a very different kind of scene there, you know. Right. Um, there's not, strangely, even though it's a Catholic country, there's just very little guilt around sex and and um, flirtation and and you know the m- people deal with each other in a very different way. It kind of reminds me of of racism. You mm. know, my wife's from Africa, and um, she she's really Indian by, you know, um, ethnicity, but she grew up in Africa and people, a lot of people think she's black because she has dark skin. And, uh, you know, she has talked about how in America she'll get this weird racist vibe from people, but everyone acts as if they're not racist. Whereas in Africa, where she grew up, people will just be like, "Yeah, I don't like blacks," you know. <laughs> uh, you know, I, no, I'd never hire a black. You know, just right, right out in the my, open.
0: My dad's a white South African, oh, that's so right. South I have African, to say, yeah. not that he's like that, but yeah. I definitely have relatives that right. are um, that are like
1: that. For well, sure, she, you know, she and other other non American black friends of mine, they all prefer it. It's like at least I know where we stand, you know. Right, like all right, you're a racist, fine, whatever. Yeah. You know, and they're black racists, I mean, But it's like, it's out on the table. And in America, everything's all, you know, under these layers of weirdness and guilt That's and That's true. That's
0: true. Yeah. I mean, we, we're definitely not good at, um, at bringing things out in the open. You know, people are so. I mean, you can just look at the lack of sex education in, in schools.
1: Yeah, you know, I just mean, say no. What the fuck kind of educational program yeah. is that? Oh my god, it's... zero tolerance. Fuck you, zero tolerance.
0: <laughs> and these things have never worked, like <laughs> the dare work. program.
1: Yeah, I mean, disaster. That
0: just, that just total disaster.
1: Yeah, you look at it in this book I'm writing now, um, civilized to death. That I, I did some uh, research on the Dutch approach to uh, sex ed mm-hmm. versus American. Mm-hmm. It's you know the Dutch are amazing. They're so chill. Yeah. You know, like your fifteen-year-old daughter has a boyfriend. Well, invite him over to dinner, and if you know he's a good guy, okay, you to make sure you use condoms, and right. he can he spends the night in her room.
0: I mean, and and you know, in Amsterdam, is it all over Dutch? All over Dutch? All over Holland, where prostitution is legal? Yeah. And don't they have like the lowest rates of like sexual violence and rape? Yeah than in places where it's severely repressed. right?
1: Yeah. You know, these tolerance... Zero tolerance is the wrong, exact wrong way to go with anything involving drugs or sex or human behavior in general. Yeah. You know, harm reduction is what we should be doing. America hasn't figured that out. Our criminal justice system has nothing to do with justice. It's about vengeance. Right. And our sex ed is... If we taught kids to drive the way we teach them about sex, we'd wait till they were eighteen, give them the keys to the car, and say, "All right, go figure it out, and you know, try not to wreck the car. (laughs) Good luck with that."
0: Yeah, you know, (laughs) yeah. It's it's kind of it's absolutely insane. I mean, I, I totally agree with you about how we're just so, I mean, even like with the, my, my parents were kind of funny about like that with the drinking thing, you know, Mm -hmm. like you can't drink until you're 21 here. And my parents would actually give us like little amounts of alcohol when we were younger to, you know, kind of train. Cause in England, you know, you start drinking earlier and so turning 21 is no big deal. So the idea is that, you know, once you're at that age, you've kind of Learned how to drink, and you're not just going to go out there and just check. Yeah. of course that didn't work for me. I became a raging alcoholic, but that has that is not their fault at all <laughs> that is just something I think I was born with
1: <laughs> yeah, in Spain, someone said to me I, I was in a when I first moved there, I was in a cafe and at breakfast, and these working guys were drinking red wine with their breakfast, and I remember I was with a friend I was like Dude, what is? They're drinking red wine with breakfast. Are you kidding? And he said, "Chris, you'll see that in Spain, everyone's an alcoholic, but no one's a drunk." <laughs> and I thought about that a lot over the years. Yeah, and it's true. The alcohol consumption is quite high, but you won't see staggering drunks. And if you do, they're probably British tourists or American fat right, kids, right, right. you know, and college break or whatever. But Spanish people don't get shit-faced. right? They drink a lot, but they don't get shitfaced.
0: Like, but they drink like kind of in moderation yeah. over like because, a long like period you say, it's
1: no big deal. It right. doesn't acquire this mystical like I can't wait, you know, till I'm on my own and right. I can. You know, do this stuff because it's like, yeah, I've been having wine at dinner with my parents since I was 13 or whenever I wanted to. It's right. not a big deal. Yeah. And we do the same, the same thing with sexuality. You talk about it openly. It's not a big deal. It's, you know, then it's fine. You know, it's, there's lots of research showing that kids that can talk to their parents about sex are far less likely to get STDs or get pregnant or, you know, have any of these issues.
0: Right. I remember my, my parents took me to go on birth control when I was 16 years old. Um, Because, you know, my mom was just like, well, you have a boyfriend. I know what you're doing. I don't want you to get pregnant. So we're going to go do that. And I've never been pregnant. Yeah. Um, It's also, um, oh man, I had this great train of thought. Now I completely lost it. Oh, so, and, and now we run into the problem these days with the advent of the internet where now Pornhub is teaching kids mm, about sex, right. so kids are not learning about sex from their parents, they're not learning about sex in school, but they have access to the internet, they have access to like unlimited amounts of porn, and they go online and they they watch porn and they watch things that they don't understand, and it gives them this completely skewed perspective on. You know, like what girls like, because, you know, in a lot of these porn scenes, you'll see scenes where, like, guys are aggressively fucking girls. I mean, with my clients, I'm often being pushed to shoot really hard, aggressive scenes. I even had a client tell me the other day, you know, we really need to walk the line of consent with the sex scenes now because, you know, we're really trying to, like, beat out browsers and, you know, these other brands that are just killing us. And I'm just like, I don't shoot that kind of stuff. I don't, that's not my thing. That's fine if it's your thing, but that's not my thing. And so these kids, they go and they see these scenes and they think, oh, all women love to have their vagina slapped. I don't know any woman that likes to have her vagina slapped, <laughs> but for some reason we shoot it in porn all the time because it's, you know, it's kind of over the top and it catches your attention. And yeah. I mean, and even what um, a lot of my clients are looking for when they're in, in these scenes is not necessarily the scene as a whole, but what we call ad moments, right? Hmm. So you know when you go onto Pornhub or some other um, free tube site or wherever, where you might see advertisements for other websites, they have these little gifts. That are like speeded up. Mm. And so you see this, and it's very active. You know, that's mm. why all my clients want, I shoot a lot of girl girl scenes, they want scissoring. Because right. when girls are going down on other girls, there's not a lot of movement going around. Right. Like, you know, how when guys are fucking girls, they, you know, those, obviously the bodies are moving together. But if girls are eating at a girl, both girls are kind of sedentary there. So the scissoring is something where both girls are moving around a lot. Now, I know very few girls who actually like to scissor, but that doesn't matter. What matters is that we get that very active moment in that gif and it catches people's eyes and yeah. they click on that it's like clickbait basically is what i'm right. shooting is clickbait so they go and they join that site and they make that money so i feel like i'm not really shooting the kind of sex that people like i'm shooting the kind of sex that gets people's attention and so they'll go and they'll join this website and and then these kids are watching this, thinking, "Oh well, that's sex that everybody likes that's how everyone does it, and that's just not true,
1: yeah yeah the the kind of sex people like isn't particularly photogenic,
0: right exactly, and it's funny yeah. too. you talk to you know porn stars about like what their favorite position is, and almost all of them will be like missionary, you know because like mi- they'll say that they love to do missionary and softcore right because in softcore we can 't show the penetration because in sex in porn we have to show the penetration because that's what people want to see. And so these people have to fuck like sideways, <laughs> you know, which is not natural at all. No yeah. one has sex like that. Yeah. So if we're shooting something where we need to shoot softcore and hide it for, you know, broadcast channels whatever, um that's kind of when porn stars tend to enjoy the sex more and right. can actually reach orgasm because they're not trying to open up to camera and they actually like can engage in something that feels good as opposed to what looks Looks good, right? So it's really interesting.
1: Yeah, and getting back to evolution, we're one of only two species in the world that have sex face to face.
0: Yes, I remember you Humans were saying and that bonobos. with the bonobos, right. right?
1: So we have this amazing capacity to be able to look into each other's eyes when we're having sex.
0: And weren't you saying that bonobos they they do that? They have these very do. deep, intimate connections where they look each other bonobos in the are eyes.
1: Incredible! I mean, they kiss. Yeah. Like tongue kiss, they hold hands, you know. They, um, a, a female chimpanzee will not let another chimpanzee hold her baby, an mm-hmm. infant, because lots of infanticide. Right. A bonobo mother will let other bonobos carry her baby without any problem. Uh, in, bonobos or years, chimps
0: are the most. Closely related to us, correct, right. in terms of the evolutionary. Yeah, DNA.
1: they're they're very closely related to one another. The way I describe them is is if like if I have twin brothers, mm-hmm. that's the chimp and the bonobo. They're very very closely related to each other, but after each other, I'm their next closest relative, right. the human, right? Um, but they're very different in their behavior. It's, you have to be an expert to tell them apart by looking at them, but. Um, behaviorally they're they're very different um, in 60 or 70 years of of observation in captivity and in the wild no one has ever witnessed a bonobo killing another bonobo or raping another bonobo right whereas chimps kill each other all the time and there's lots of infanticide there's what you know we call warfare between groups of chimps and um bonobos are yeah they look into each other's eyes they um kiss each other hold hands uh have sex in all different positions um different they have same sex a lot of same sex interaction especially female female um they're yeah they're fascinating and and uh have far more in common with humans in terms of sexual behavior than any other animal
0: and they're the most peaceful
1: and they're very peaceful, yeah. Which is not to say they don't, they do have hierarchies, they do have tension. Um, but Franz Duval, the, the great Dutch primatologist who has studied them as much as anyone, said that chimpanzees use violence to get sex and bonobos use sex to avoid violence. Oh, so the same thing I want to be a bonobo. that promotes, the same thing that would trigger violence among chimps. Like, for example, if you have a cage full of, you know, or an enclosure full of chimpanzees and you throw a a bag of food there, it creates tension because, uh uh-oh, who's going to get the food? And what's going to happen? And so they'll start fighting and screaming. And generally what will happen is the highest-ranking males who have a coalition will take the food and they might share some with a female who's ovulating because there's trading food for sex a lot. Um, but generally they'll just keep it for themselves. Whereas if you throw a bag of food into an enclosure of bonobos, they'll look at the food, they'll all have sex with each other, and then they'll (laughs) share the food.
0: Wait, seriously? Yeah. Oh my God, that's amazing.
1: Because they experience the same anxiety that the chimps do, and when bonobos feel anxiety, they have sex.
0: Well, I think that that just goes to show that we need to all be more like bonobos, That's the key to happiness. The world would be a better
1: place. And one of the main, and getting back to the Me Too movement in in a different light, the main difference between chimps and bonobos, they're both what scientists call female exogamous, which means that in order to avoid inbreeding uh, in both species, the female leaves the group she was born into when she becomes sexually mature. So she doesn't live with her mothers and her brothers and her father, right? Her biological father. Um, she goes and joins another group. Bonobos do the same thing. So the female joins a group where everybody else knows each other. Everybody else has these ongoing relationships. So she's at a big disadvantage, right? And in chimps, that means that the males who have these strong coalitions can control the females easily, A, because they're bigger and stronger, as with humans and bonobos, about 20%. But also because the females don't work together in mm. the chimps. But in bonobos, even though the females come from other groups, the females stick together. So if a male hurts or attacks or tries to, you know, coerce another female, all the females will attack him. It's like Twitter <laughs> at, at its best. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. So. There is this this female sticking together that enables bonobo society to be way better not only for females but for males, because the males are having far more sex because the females are relaxed right they don 't feel threatened so you know I get on my podcast, I get a lot of um, young men sort of writing in and asking for advice on dating and how to deal with women and you know courtship behavior and all that. And one of the things I always say is the first step has to be making women, letting women know that they're respected and they're safe and that they can say no without it being a big deal. Right. Because they're much less likely to say no if they know they can. Right. You know, you leave the door open, people are less likely to leave because the door's open. They're, they know they can leave whenever they want to. Right. So creating that kind of psychological space, whether in your, your relationships on an individual level or in a society, it ends up being way better for everybody. You know, women in Holland, we were talking about, are far more relaxed about sex. And so Dutch guys get laid a lot more. That's just the way it works. You know, if you make women feel... Uptight and afraid and victimized, they're much, they're not going to be comfortable with their own bodies and their own sexuality. So, sorry, dude, you're out of luck. Right? You know. So, so I I try to you know make that point. And with bonobos, it's really clear. The females are very powerful. They stick together. If a dude gets out of line, he gets shit from all the females. And so, what ends up happening is everybody has a much better time.
0: I love it. I love it. Okay, well, I think that's a great place to end this podcast because I think that that is a wonderful piece of advice that everybody should listen to. So just respect women and make them feel good and make them feel comfortable and you shall get laid. You too shall get laid. <laughs> Be more like bonobos. Exactly, Chris, thank you so much. This was, um, this was really interesting and like incredibly educational and I can't wait... To um I can't wait to read the rest of your book.
1: Yeah, well, let me know. I and hope you like the second half.
0: Oh, I I'm <laughs> absolutely sure that I will. Uh can you tell our listeners where they can find you on social media so they can uh-huh. to send you dating questions and yeah. uh, know learn more about bonobos?
1: Yeah, well my my it's everything's available at my website, uh com or tangentiallyspeaking.com It all sort of goes to the same place. Uh and the podcast is called Tangentially Speaking. It's everywhere podcasts are found. And uh, Twitter, that Chris Ryan, Instagram, that Chris Ryan. Not the other Chris Ryan, that Chris Ryan.
0: That Chris Ryan, the important Chris Ryan. Yeah,
1: the Chris Ryan. The who, only
0: Chris Ryan that matters.
1: Who won the non best nonsense performance.
0: <laughs> Which, you know, I'm still jealous of. I mean, you may find that once I've left that that ABN <laughs> award is no longer it's, on your shelf. It's Because I am feeling very jealous.
1: It's a little big to slip into your pocket.
0: <laughs> well, you'd be surprised. You don't know how big my pocket is. okay. <laughs>
1: boom, <Ba-dum-boom-tsh>. boom, <laughs>
0: All right. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, you can follow me at Holly Randall on Instagram and on Twitter. And if you want to support this podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash Holly Randall Unfiltered. That's P A E T. Shit. I
1: forgot.
0: There you go. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> Thanks, guys. And we'll see you next week. That. Interview was just as exciting and interesting as I'd hoped it would be. He is such a fascinating guy, and we talked about so many interesting things. And you know, I really love the way that he kind of circled it back to female empowerment and the Me Too movement at the end. I just think he sends a really great message, and I just found that super fascinating and I can't wait to go home and tell my boyfriend about everything that we talked about. Not that I want to get into an open relationship, but just uh, it really made me think about um, human relationships differently and human sexuality and human psychology. All that stuff is just so incredibly fascinating to me. So thank you so much, Christopher Ryan, for coming on. That was truly a delightful episode. Next week on Holly Randall Unfiltered, we have Elsa Jean. Elsa Jean is an adorable petite blonde porn star who looks super cute and super innocent, but I can assure you she is not. And I can't wait to talk to her, hear about her experiences in the industry. She's only been in the industry for about three years, so she's still sort of new, but she's got all kinds of really, really funny stories, um, some of which I've heard part of, and I really want her to share them with you guys. So make sure that you don't miss out on Elsa Jean next week on Holly Randall Unfiltered.